So if you haven't already, if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm 5. We're going to be uh, working through that uh, psalm this morning. And again, if you are new, uh, you, you know, just know we typically study through a book of the Bible. We start at the first chapter and go to the end uh, with the psalms. That would take a long time. So we're going to do kind of a, a portion of, of the psalms and then maybe come back at some uh, point in the future. Uh, also, uh, just as a reminder, I'm going to be uh, teaching uh, Revelation in September and so you can be praying for us as we prepare for that. That's going to take uh, a lot of, of work uh, in preparation. And then uh, we will be talking about that in the near future. So if you would bow with me and then we'll get started. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that by your power alone that you would make known uh, your truth to us this morning. We know that the Spirit awakens us to the realities of the gospel and the Spirit continues to allow us to understand and grasp the truths of the gospel. Lord, we ask that we would be a people that would always be longing to learn and grow in you. Lord, we know that all truth, all that you've given us in your word is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we might be adequate and prepared for every good work. And so I pray today that you would do that uh, in our hearts. In Christ's name, amen. So when we're reading uh, Psalm 5, there's a couple of things uh, that kind of stood out to me that I read. One author calls this uh, a prayer to go to God's house or for God's house. It's to kind of enter into uh, God's uh, presence. Uh, another person said this focuses on a God-saturated life. And so uh, we have here really a vision for coming to God, which kind of shows us someone who is driven with this uh, initiative to, to know God, to be in His presence, to experience His salvation, and, and all of those uh, things. So I think that's kind of helpful. Another thing I think is kind of uh, interesting because we have started in Psalm 1 and worked our way through what you notice really in Psalm 3 through 6. If you were to look back at those, we're not going to spend time looking back at them, but you'll see in Psalm 3 that it's, it kind of makes you think it's a morning psalm. Uh, it speaks of the morning. Psalm 4, it, it has aspects of speaking of the evening. Psalm 5, which is where we are today, again, we return to the morning. And then Psalm 6 uh, will return to the evening. And a lot of people say it's a way for the Psalms to kind of help you see that all day long we should be coming to our God. We should always be uh, searching after Him, seeking after Him. Uh, if you think back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, where it says, pray without ceasing. There's an all, always like an all-encompassing direction of our lives towards God. We're directing our way and our thoughts in that way. Uh, it's inter interesting, uh, Charles Spurgeon said, prayer should be the key of the day and the lock at the, in the night. And so he's saying both in the morning and the evening, we should center our lives in God. Now, if you're looking at Psalm 5, you're going to see five different, what you might say, uh, stanzas as you're moving through uh, Psalm 5. Uh, the first three, if, if just again, you're kind of thinking through this, someone singing these songs, the first three, the first, or not first three, actually, the first, third, and fifth uh, are really the idea of standing before God. The second and fourth kind of has this place where the psalmist kind of takes a glimpse over at the wicked. And so you kind of see that uh, working itself out. And, and I think that's kind of helpful for us. Uh, on those two where he glimpses at the wicked, the second one is kind of in contrast to God. And the fourth one is in contrast to the righteous, the one who 
walks with God. So if you like an outline, you like to be able to think through that, just kind of know that's where we're um, moving today. Uh, another person says Psalm 5 illustrates with clarity the polarity and tension which characterizes certain dimensions of the life of prayer. On the one side, there is God. Uh, on the other, it's evil human beings. And it's kind of like we see this this pole of like uh, you're, you're seeing on one side God, one side evil human beings. And kind of you begin to ask, how can we be able to enter into a relationship with this God? How can we know him? How can we be sure as sinful human beings that we can come into his presence? Because at the center of this psalm is the holiness of God. He is set apart from evil. And so the issue really begins. And that's really one of the big questions of the Bible. If God is holy and we are sinful, then how in the world could we be reconciled to him? So we're, we're kind of thinking about that. And how could we enter into relationship? How can we know that he hears us? Uh, I, I'm going to give you a couple of things here that I think are helpful. Uh, I believe it was a guy named Wilson who spoke of this. But he says, uh, God's holiness is not only sinful humanity's greatest problem, but it is at, at one and the same time its greatest hope. Just listen to that. God's holiness is not only sinful humanity's greatest problem, but it is at one and the same time its greatest hope. The Holy One who judges is also the Holy One who redeems, who saves. I mean, that is a central teaching that if you get that in your heart and understand that, it will shake you up and help you understand in a very powerful way what it means to know a holy God. So we just need to kind of grasp that. I want you to look at one verse before we kind of move step by step. Look at verse 7. But I hope through the abundance of your steadfast love. I'm sorry, but I through the abundance of your steadfast love will enter your house. I will bow down toward your holy temple in the fear of you. We can come to God who is holy through humility. We come before him and in his holiness, because he is infinitely good, we can trust that he will receive us. It's a very powerful picture here, because the question is over and over throughout the scripture, how can sinful man be in fellowship with a holy God? Psalm five, verse one, give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you do I pray. O Lord, in the morning you hear my voice. In the morning I will prepare a sacrifice for you and watch. You'll notice three imperatives here as he speaks to God. He says, give ear to my words, consider my groanings, give attention to my cry. It's like an urgent prayer. You have this kind of persistent prayer and you also have him kind of he's expecting God to do something. And so he is praying very boldly. He's crying out to God. You do see these different types of prayer. And if you're honest, if you've spent much time in prayer, you probably say, I've been in all those places. There are times when you pray and you pray maybe and you're able to verbalize your prayers. Uh, most of the time when we pray, we do verbalize our prayers. We speak to God. God has given us the unique ability to communicate with him. We speak to him. He has spoken to us. He has spoken to us in a way that we can understand. We speak back to him. And so prayer certainly involves us speaking to God. We verbalize those. 
Um, and it's interesting here, I think, too, uh, he, give ear to my words. And really what we could say is uh, our, uh, really out of the abundance of the heart, what flows out of the heart is it, that's where prayers come from. As we seek after God, we, we're coming before him. And he says, give ear to my words as I verbalize these things. Oh, Lord, listen to me. Now, there's also this idea of groaning here. You'll see him. He says, consider my groaning. It, this is kind of the idea of like not maybe being able to verbalize those fully. I don't even know sometimes maybe what to pray as I struggle to get to that place. I think, well, I don't even know how to articulate this, Lord. Sometimes, um, and you've probably been in relationships with, with people where uh, maybe they find it really hard to communicate what they're feeling in the moment. I mean, some of us don't have as big a problem with that. We can just talk endlessly and others have to think about and process and understand how can I communicate what's going on here. And we see here, I think in the prayer lives of, of the saints, that struggle. But we also have a passage in Romans eight twenty six. It says, uh, for we do not know what to pray as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes uh, for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we know in our prayer life, it's not only sometimes we verbalize, sometimes we're groaning and there's just this longing for God and a longing for God to move and you're saying I don't exactly know how to verbalize that but I can trust the spirit is working in spite of my inability to do so now then you also see um, and I well, I want to mention one other thing uh, with um, and sometimes I, I don't know I, maybe I shouldn't mention my kids that much I don't know but William just kind of throw him out there he uh he will cry out in the middle of the night sometimes. And that doesn't happen. Uh, well, one, I don't always hear it. Generally, Anna will hear the cries. I'll be like sitting there hearing it and be like, oh, act like I'm asleep. No, not really. But, but I'll be like, I, I won't always hear him. But when I do hear it, like I take off running to find out what's wrong because he's, he's like crying out to me. But then uh, there's times where I've ran in there and I'll say, he'll be crying and he'll throw his arms around me. I'll be like, what's wrong? And he just, all he can do is kind of moan, you know, like he doesn't know. He, it's almost like, can you, can you tell me what's wrong? He doesn't know what to say. So I hold him, assure him, tell him I'm just a few steps away and just set him back down. And I think it's kind of like that sometimes in the Christian life. We, we, and, and we, we kind of attribute it to maybe he had a bad dream. He can't articulate it. He just knows he woke up and he's afraid. And I think for the Christian, that, that's something we understand as we are drawing close to the Lord. Uh, sometimes in, in the difficult days, uh, we don't know exactly what to do, but we know that we can trust him. And we even see this cry, even like where there's a crying out, where he cries out to God, uh, asking him to move. And so I, um, I think that's a very beautiful picture here. Now, I also want you to see, he says, um, consider my groaning, give attention to the sound of my cry. And he says, my God or my king and my God, for to you I pray. When he says my, when he says my God, my king, it is the idea of a covenant relationship. I am in a personal relationship with him. I know him. I'm intimately connected to him. He is my God. He is my king. He is Lord over me. He reigns over all. And I know him personally. God, it's a way of saying not only am I committed to God, but God is committed to me. 
That's very important to understand that he is committed to his people. He is so committed that I always, I mean, whenever you start wondering, is God committed to us? You run to the cross and you say, yes, there is no greater picture in all the world than than this. And that God is committed to us. He has pursued us with covenant love. He has made a promise. He has kept it to his people. He will keep them and, and he's holding them in his hand. And that's a very important thing. He's saying the Lord who reigns over me, who is my king, I'm in his kingdom. I'm under his protection. He reigns over all it's a very like I said it's a beautiful picture but you also see in these verses just something that oh Lord in the morning you hear my voice in the morning I prepare a sacrifice for you and watch now there is that early morning arising up to say I'm going to spend time with God there's that intentional kind of picture here but also the idea of this this altar where he's laying these things up before the Lord it the morning sacrifice, there would be times you know, with the priests where they would uh, take an animal and they would cut the animal up and prepare it and then lay the sacrifice up there in a way that, that would be um, maybe considered the right way to do so. And you kind of have this idea where there's this forethought where I'm laying my prayers before him in a ordered way. It's not like uh, I'm, I'm not thinking about it. There's a conscious effort that I'm coming to God in a way that would be pleasing to him and setting before him the sacrifice that he might move and consume it. Just like you think about with um, uh, so, somebody like Elijah, where the, he, he said, set the sacrifice up and all of it prepared and then calling down fire for God to answer him in that moment. Uh, Spurgeon even explains it almost like the it's almost like taking a bow and you you put the arrow on it and you shoot it up towards heaven that he might bring down and send down to me uh, an answer. He, he does have it has this picture where he is looking up to God to answer him. He, he's watching. It's not like a, it is a prayer of faith here. He's saying, I'm believing God that you will answer I don't throw these prayers up and say you're going to be silent. I'm in relationship with you. I'm crying out and I expect for you to answer me when I cry. Because you are a good God and you are my God and you are in relationship with me and you're pursuing me with goodness and mercy. I'm trusting you to answer me in my prayers. So, you see his confidence in that. But look at verses 4 through 6. He says, God does not listen to the wicked. So he's saying, listen to me. But then he says, whoa, hold on just a second. God does not listen to the wicked. Now, what's interesting is in our prayer, you know, every week when you uh, take this uh, and you say, okay, there's a call to worship. There's this great God who's over all and he's holy. And then you call this call to confession and you say, good night, I'm sinful. Right? God is holy and we are sinful. So what are we going to do with that? He says he does not hear the wicked. He does not listen to the wicked. He does not delight in the in wickedness. And so we're going to kind of see that we're going to say God is holy. What is he going to do with the wicked? Now, verse four through six, for you're not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You shall not dwell with evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. So what do we see here? God is holy. He's not a friend of the wicked. He cannot dwell with wicked uh, wickedness or evil. Now, 
what if you studied about the ancient kind of people and their view of the gods, this is what they would say. They would say about the gods that they were um, they would really explain them much like a man, but that they were powerful and they lived forever was really what made them very distinct. So it's kind of interesting when we think about like the holiness of God, when they would explain God, their their gods as holy, they would say they're separate from us and that they live forever and they're all powerful. But but Israel's view of God was different than that. The God revealed in Scripture is a God who has a character about him. He is not like man. He is not sinful or vengeful or uh, he's not doing the things. He does not manipulate or deceive. He does not lie. They are saying he is a holy God. He is not only all powerful, dwelling, living forever, but he is perfect in all of his attributes. And so it's, I think it's very powerful to see this. We see God's holiness on display as he rejects wickedness and the wicked and he embraces the righteous. And we'll see that as we move through the text. So David's kind of speaking of this. And you're, this is interesting, too. If you read the Psalms that we've studied so far, there's a lot of talk about the wicked. There's a lot of, of, of information given to us with regard to the wicked. Here in this text, he says the wicked, uh, the Lord does not listen to their prayers. He does not delight in their wickedness and their evil. Notice all those things he says about the wicked. They're evil, boastful, evildoers. They speak lies. They're bloodthirsty. They're deceitful. This reveals really the horrible nature of sin and sinners. We see the wicked person uh, is not only all of these things, but we see these descriptions kind of growing in, in like a focus in a way. And here's what you see. We see that it starts with God not delighting in wickedness. But notice what happens in the text. God hates all evildoers. He will destroy them. He despises the wicked and they will be punished. It's almost like sometimes people say, you know, uh, God loves sinners and they don't really define, though. What, what, what would that what does that really look like? What are we talking about when you were saying that? Well, how do we articulate that and understand that? Well, one thing we have to understand is God is the, the greatest thing that a person that's living in rejection of God should fear is not Satan. Right. They're not to fearing Satan, really. Satan's not the thing that they should fear most. The thing they should fear most is facing a holy God. Satan don't, doesn't send people to hell. God sends people to hell. Satan doesn't punish them eternally. God punishes them eternally. The greatest thing for you to fear in this moment, if you are walking in total rejection of God, is that God is going to fa- you're going to face him. You will give an account to him. You've offended him. He's the one who sits as the judge of the universe. He will send you eternally separated from him into hell. That, that's who you should fear. And so I think it's important that we understand that because God has a settled disposition towards sinners and their rejection of him and he will punish their wickedness and he will do so with absolute like there's no question about it. He will do this. Now, what does that mean for someone you say, well, I I know the Lord, I've trusted him. What does that mean? It, It means you should take sin seriously. We should have the same heart that God has towards sin. We should hate sin. We should strive to put off sin. 
we should want to root out every evil and every sin in our lives. We shouldn't laugh at sin. We should, we should be, think of sin as a horrible thing. And seek to throw it off in every place. And we should seek to make every path that we can to find sin in our hearts and run it out. And throw it out. And put it to death. And get rid of it. The idea for the Christian is we should live in a state of repentance. Agreeing with God about our sin and seeking to turn away from it and walk in a different way. Now... We see that not only, I mean, we started out and he prays to God. And as he prays to God, we see uh, he, his prayer is he appeals to God to listen to his prayer and act. And then he says, God doesn't put up with the wicked. He doesn't listen to them. And then as you move forward, we see in verses seven and eight that God extends mercy to the humble. So you see this, it says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, uh, will enter your house. I will doubt, bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before me. So here's the thing. You might say, and this is what self-righteous people might do. They might say, Lord, and it's kind of what the, remember the Pharisee who did that? There were two people in Jesus' story, a Pharisee and a tax collector. The Pharisee was over there and he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like all those sinners. Right? So you might say, oh, David, what he's going to appeal to is his righteousness. He's going to say, God, I'm so righteous. I'm so much better than all those evil people. Of course you're going to listen to me. Because I'm righteous. I'm good. I do everything right. I'm just the perfect example of what you want me to be. So, of course, you'll listen to me. That is not what he appeals to. He says, but I, through the abundance of your steadfast love, will enter your house. I'm not trusting in my righteousness to be able to stand before you. If I am, if I am, I am a fool. Because only a fool would think that they could stand before a holy God. You remember Isaiah? Isaiah is in the presence of the holy God. And do you know what he says? Woe is me, a sinner. He knows he needs cleansing. He knows that he is in a desperate place. It's interesting. I think as Christians, we should say, we should be the, the, the people that most say that, that, that we are in need of mercy. Because we understand the holiness of God. That is really why we do our services the way we do. Because every week we want both Christian and non-Christian to hear that God is holy and that we are sinful. And that we need to hear that over and over and over because then the gospel of the grace of God in Christ becomes more precious. The cross grows in our minds and in our eyes. We need it more and more and more. Just moving here, I, I want you to, I'm trying to think here about a couple more things that we would talk about in regard to this. But I think it's just important to understand, as we said earlier, God's holiness offers sinful humanity both its greatest problem and its greatest hope. As people looking at this text, we should say, we see in God's holiness, he must judge the wickedness. And yet, because he is holy and inf he is infinitely good and he extends mercy. 
What type of people does he extend mercy to? Notice what it says in this text. I will bow down towards your holy temple in the fear of you. What kind of people? It's the humble. It's the broken. It's the people who recognize what, what, what the Beatitudes tells us. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are meek. All those pictures are the poor in spirit knows their spiritual poverty. The one mourning sees the, the wretchedness of their sin. The one who's meek realizes that they're done with themselves because they have no hope in themselves. And then, as you move through the Beatitudes, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Whose righteousness? It's a righteous, an alien righteousness, a righteousness outside of themselves that God would grant to them. Blessed are those who are sitting before the Lord, bowing down before Him in the fear of Him, recognizing who He is and falling on their face and begging as a sinner in need of a Savior. Blessed are those people that they will enter in. They get to a place... That's the, the small gate spoken of in, in, in Matthew 7 is that gate that someone enters in on their face. That, that, that's the picture. When you're trying to lead your children to understand the gospel or you're wondering if they do. It's not just them saying, oh, I believe in Jesus. It is a broken heart. Over their sin, a longing to be uh, to know him because they are a wretched sinner in need of a great savior. And you see that process of repentance in their hearts where they are seeking to throw off sin and be empowered by the grace of God to embrace the savior. He goes on and says, lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies, make your way straight before me. He's asking the Lord to lead him in the right way. To lead him in a way that would be honoring towards him in your righteousness. I want to walk in a right way. And he's saying, clear the path, Lord. Clear the path. I think about that. If you've ever, I don't know how many of you have messed around um, out in the woods or out in like an overgrown field or whatever. And you go out there with a bush hog and you just have to clear the path. And you're running through and there's all this stuff all around. Or maybe it's even worse than that. You have seen taking, people take bulldozers and push down all kinds of stuff. It just, it's one of those things where you're saying, clear the path, make the path straight. Allow me to know where to walk and I want to walk in that, Lord. You're going to have to direct my ways and empower me towards a way that would be honoring in your sight. You're going to have to set the table, as Psalm 23 says, in the presence of my enemies. Cause me to walk in a straight way. Blaze the trail for me, Lord, that I might walk in your ways. Notice what happens in verse 9 and 10. We saw earlier that God does not listen to the wicked. And he says that God judges the wicked. For there is no truth in their mouth, their inmost self. Is destruction. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. Make them bear their guilt, O God. Let them fall by their own counsels. Because of the abundance of their transgressions, cast them out, for they have rebelled against you. 
He calls on God to judge the wicked. He appeals to them for him to judge them. He is a righteous God. He must punish it. God's already told us that. And so he must punish the wicked. Think about the tongue. Notice their tongue. Again, the tongue reveals what's in their heart. Have you ever met somebody that said, well, I'm just going to learn to keep my mouth shut. They've missed it. They need their hearts changed. Keeping your mouth shut with even though your heart is filled with all types of evil, although it might benefit those around you. And they might be happy to know that you're doing it. It doesn't really deal with the problem. You, You can see that. For there is no truth in their mouth. Their inmost self is destruction. What's within comes out. Just flows out. It just is part of it. It flows out of them. The tongue is the mouthpiece of the heart. What needs to change is the heart. Notice it says their throat is an open grave through which those they they slander are brought into ruin and even death. It's almost like this idea that when they show up, what comes with them is destruction. Everywhere they go, they destroy. It's powerful image of the deadly consequences of slander. This picture here is your move. We're not looking at each one of these, but I think it's just important to notice they have one mouth, one heart, one throat and one tongue. It's almost like there's a group of people gathered in their rebellion against God in their destruction of humanity. And they're, it, they're, they're almost like one voice moving together to bring destruction. He's portraying these enemies as a single entity in concert to make bring destruction wherever they go. David says they join in their rebellion, but they they meet together in their rebellion. They continue their rebellion, but they together will be destroyed together. All of them. In them, we see no brokenness or humility. There's no desire really for mercy. They don't believe that they need it. Instead of falling on their faces in shame and need, they are proud of their wickedness. One day they will bow. It will come. And David prays that they would meet their end. That prayer is not wrong. In that because God has commanded that he will judge the wicked. It's not a wrong prayer that he prays that God would exercise his judgment on the wicked. Verse 11 and 12. But let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them sing for joy and spread your protection over them. That those who love your name may exult in you. For you bless the righteous, O Lord. You cover him with favor as with a shield. The righteous are those who come in humility before God. They are not sinless. They are sinners in need of a Savior. They are sinners who are broken over their sin. They are sinners who bow down before Him. He's saying, may joy come in their hearts. May they understand the joy of repentance. May they understand the joy of being in the Lord and being His children and finding refuge in Him. When I was a kid, uh, sometimes storm, you know, this area, the storms like come through, sometimes really frightening storms, sometimes storms that were 
uh, the, you know, you would hear about them and you know it's like a warning coming through. And so my parents would, uh, in our house was uh, kind of in the center of the house was a bathroom. We'd all pile in there and, and you would have pillows and blankets and stuff. And we would get in and they might cover you up and say, you know, like we're preparing for this storm in the safest place that we can possibly find. I think that's something of what we think about when we think about our lives with the Lord. He's saying, may he be a shelter, but, but, but a shelter that's sure. May we learn to run to him and, and go to the safe place. Instead of all, the world has all these places that are safe. If you were to stop right now and say, okay, what would it look like for you to have a safe life? You might say, my children never get hurt. I have my 401k built up to a certain level and they're going to pay out this amount. Or we might say, I have all the insurances that I could possibly ever need. And so everything is covered. We think about places that are safe and we say, oh, this will bring us in a safe place. And we long for safety and security. And the reality is in this life, there is no true security. Apart from finding security in the Lord. And he's saying that these people, let them find joy in him. Let us take refuge in you and rejoice, knowing that you are the one who protects us. You keep us. You watch over us. Psalm 91, I encourage you. I'm not going to read this today, but he, all of it. But I just want you to hear a few verses. It says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. He, his faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. The Lord keeps his people. He watches over them. He protects them. He is in he, he is his heart is close to them and he protects them with everything. All of heaven gives us a clarity that he is watching over and caring for us. Today, you are either under God's wrath and curse or you're under his blessing. That, that's the reality. You are either, like God's holiness is either going to be a comfort to you or a curse to you. Knowing that God is holy, he must punish sin. But knowing that he is holy, we know that he is good and he is merciful and he has provided a way in he, to, to satisfy his holy wrath uh, for us. So if you're here today, you are either in Christ, the shelter from the coming storm, or you are outside of him. And you and I need to understand that when we talk to people, they stand in those two places. You are either among the righteous or among the wicked. You are either in proud rebellion or humbly coming to God. You are either in this place where you have found a shelter that will not stand in the coming judgment or you have found the shelter that will keep you through the storm. One of those two are true. And so I hope today, if you are here, that you would come to Christ that you would trust in Him, in His righteousness, in His sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God, that you would turn to Him by faith so that you would be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the comfort that is in Your Word. I thank You, Lord, that You have provided us a way of escape. I thank You that we have a hope that is sure. I thank You, Lord, that we can boast in Your holiness because we know in your holiness and your, 
your, your purity, that you are good and that you have provided us a way to escape in the coming storm, to enter into your presence, to experience blessing through our crucified Savior, Jesus Christ. It's his name we pray. Amen.